And what great truth to hear and sing and remember this morning. That God sought us out, that he has sustained us, he has brought us to himself, and that he has promised that he will always love us, that he will never forsake us. Amen? Well, let's remain standing for just another moment, and let's take out our Bibles and turn them to Mark's Gospel, to chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. We'll be reading just a a brief portion this morning, verses 13 through 17. We'll read that, and that will be the text that we'll be considering today. So Mark chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its its purpose in our lives that we may learn of you, that we may learn of ourselves, we may learn our lack, we may learn our need, we may learn your provision through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so now as we come to your word, as we consider these things that uh, are before us today, we pray, Father, that you would teach us. We pray that you would put us in remembrance of what you have done. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit would teach us from your word today. And we pray that we would be mindful to keep these things in our hearts, Lord, and to think on them often in this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. One of the most important questions that a Christian might ponder, or any human being might ponder for for that matter, might contemplate, is the question of why Jesus came. Why was it good? Why was it necessary? Why would God the Father go through all the the preparation, set forth all of the pieces in place that this could happen as it did, set forth all of the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to the coming of Christ? And why, even before that, in the councils of eternity past, why would he go to his son and say to him, if you are willing to go, I have a job for you. I have a charge to put to you. To to give up, for a time, all of the glories of heaven. For you, the, the uncreated one, to take on a created nature, a human nature. 
You who have existed for all eternity with me and with the Holy Spirit, I want you, the eternal one, I want you to to become an embryo in the womb of a human woman and go there and to grow there in her womb for nine months. I want you to be born into the world that you created. The creator become a creation and to take all of the weakness of humanity on yourself. If you will, I want you to live with them as one of them, to suffer under their weakness. You, the the possessor of all knowledge and all wisdom, I want you as one of them to grow in knowledge and wisdom. And at the right time, to take on the, the mantle and the work of the Messiah, to proclaim to them the kingdom of God, to bear up under the inevitable rejection. And as they grow to hate you, I want you to continue to love them and to serve them. If you will go, I want you to preach the kingdom. You'll do mighty signs. You will heal the sick. You'll cast out evil spirits. You'll cause storms to cease. You'll even raise the dead. You will gather around you many followers, most of whom will follow you for the wrong reasons. And even among your closest, your most intimate circle of friends, one will rise to betray you into the hands of your enemy. You will be arrested. You will be tried. You will be lied about. You will be beaten mercilessly. And finally, you will be hung on a cross so that you might bear the sins of those that I will give to you as a heritage, God would say. You will rise from the dead and you will commit to a handful of your followers the task of picking up where you left off and spreading the good news about you, the good news that you had come, the good news of what you accomplished. And then you, with your new human nature, will return here where you will receive all authority in heaven and on earth. Why? Why would God do that? Why did Jesus come? Well, we'll have to let Jesus answer that for us a little later this morning. And he will. But first, let's pick up here, leading to that, let's pick up Mark's record of the life and the ministry of Jesus, of the fact that he came, of the the record of what he did. The life and the ministry of, as Mark called him at the opening of his gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we've been following that along. We've seen that Jesus has been ministering in the area of Galilee, up there in the northern part of of Israel. He's been preaching the gospel of God. He's been proclaiming the coming, the at-handness of the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he's been calling men and women to repent and to believe in him. He has healed many. He has cast out demons. He has healed leprosy, he's healed uh, paralysis, all as a means, we've seen, of, of demonstrating to all his authority and the truthfulness of his message and the truthfulness of who he is who has come among them. And he has even shown that he has the authority to forgive sins and that he is willing to do that. 
for those who trust him. Something that, as the religious experts noted, and we saw it last week, that only God can do. Jesus did it and proved that it was more than empty words when he said it by then healing a man on the spot, giving them a visible sign to prove that which was invisible. With the result, we saw last week, that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this, from verse 12. And now we come to verse 13, a continuation of the things that Christ did. And Jesus here in verse 13 is is seen, as we had seen him before, walking along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And in an already familiar refrain, Mark tells us that all the crowd was coming to him. Haven't we seen that several times? They want to see, what's he going to do next? Who is he going to heal? What wonders will this man do? But Jesus here, in, in another familiar refrain, is still sticking to his consistent, usual practice. And verse 13 says that while all the crowd was coming to him, it says he was teaching them. He was proclaiming those things. He was instructing them. That he, he never veers from that. He never gives in to the, the temptation to become a miracle worker and just a miracle worker. He recognizes that he has come to preach the gospel, the gospel of God, as we learned earlier. So, as we open here this morning, this is really the exact same kind of context from earlier in chapter 1, when Jesus encountered and called his first disciples, Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John. And in that case, we saw that Jesus was engaged in preaching He walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and there came across these men that he called to be his disciples. And here now we see the same thing, but with a twist. We're going to see three things this morning. The first of them is the Lord's call. Remember when Jesus met Simon and Andrew and James and John, he met them while they were fishing while they were engaged in the very honorable occupation of fishing. We saw then that while it didn't make them rich, it provided a living. And they did it well. They were honorable men, making an honorable living, doing honorable work. We should be reminded as we think about that, that good work done conscientiously done for the glory of of God in keeping with our daily stewardships, that that's always honorable to God. For callings, vocation, as the Puritans used to call it, uh, those are all honorable if they are, you know, within reason, if they are doing uh, allowable things, lawful things, that any occupation done to the glory of God is honorable. We shouldn't think that there are some occupations that are, are better, are more honorable to God, are more able to honor God than others. And fishing is certainly one of those. This day, though, as Jesus walks along the shore, he encounters a somewhat different situation. 
The city of Capernaum, remember, uh, was where Jesus was ministering. We'll just wait for that to end. The city of Capernaum was one of three cities in, in the region here as they were situate, situated along major trade routes in Israel. Uh, they were, there were three cities that served a particular service for the Roman Empire. And this one was at the border of the territories between Herod Antipas, who had sway over the regions of Galilee and Judea to the south, between them and the areas to the north that were governed by Herod Philip, and the area to the east known as the Decapolis. Those all sort of converged there in this area. And as people traveled through this area, they would be required to pay taxes on the items that they exported and imported as they, as they went through there. Think of it as sort of a customs system. And at strategic points in this city of Capernaum, which was on that trade route, there would be these, these customs booths or tax collectors booths, and the men in them would have their their clipboard or their notebook and their pen ready to assess and collect taxes. They'd be manned by men who worked, in the case here, in the service of Herod Antipas. But ultimately, they worked for the Roman Empire. And here's how these these tax collectors worked. They, They actually worked for men who were known as chief tax collectors. They were sort of the overseers. Zacchaeus was one of those. And the chief tax collectors would assign to the 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 in-the-trenches tax collectors their quota, what they needed to to collect and that they would have to turn over. So the -the on-the-street tax collector, their own profit, their own living from this would come from what they could charge over and above what they had to then turn over. And there was no ethical guardrail with this. Whatever they could get, they could charge. And you might guess where that ended up with corruption and with gross overcharging. Uh, the, the, the name of the tax collecting game in this area at this time was molting. A new word that I learned this week as I studied for this. To mulct is to swindle. It's to defraud or to coerce something, especially money from someone through fraudulent means or through coercion. And that's what these tax collectors would do. And as a result, they became, first of all, very despised by the people who lived there, like many people today despise the IRS. And second, they would become very rich off the backs of others. And it is to one of these booths, one of these tax collectors' booths, and to one of these tax collectors that Jesus approaches as he walks along the shore. Verse 14 tells us that, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Now, to the description that I just gave of of the despised tax collector, let me add one other thing in this particular instance. It's that this man, who is making a, a fortune on the backs of those that he is overtaxing, 
This man who is sticking it really to the Jewish people in service of the Roman government is himself a Jew. And Jewish tax collectors were seen as just above Gentiles to the rest of the Jews. They were the scum of the earth. They were traitors. They were turncoats. The word pariah is probably a very appropriate word to describe Levi here, the son of Alphaeus, to the other Jews in the area. But our Lord comes to him, and once again our Lord demonstrates his authority to call whom he will to follow him. And he demonstrates his grace by choosing this man to call. A rich man, but also one of the dregs of society. He chooses him of all the people who he had walked past and who had walked past him on that day along the shore. He chooses him as he walked past his tax booth. And he gives to Levi the same call that he had given earlier to Simon and to Andrew and to James and to John. In verse 14 we read it. And he said to him, follow me. Again, that same strong, gutsy sort of call. Leave that and follow me. And that's the Lord's call. Proving here once again that Jesus often calls the most unlikely people to be his disciples. And in that, beloved, God's grace is manifested. Because, if we think about it for just a moment, we are all the most unlikely people, aren't we? None of us are worthy to be called. None of us are worthy to be included with Christ, in Christ, with God. We are not worthy, as John the Baptist said, we are not worthy to untie his sandals, let alone be adopted into his family. None of us are are worthy to be called his brother. And yet Hebrews 2.11 tells us that he is not ashamed to call us that. None of us is deserving of God's grace and God's mercy. And yet, beloved, he chose you. He chooses us. And he chooses to give us eternal life to call us to himself, to unite us with himself. And that is just what he does to Levi here. And once again, we see the power of Christ to call a man effectually because we're told here that he rose and followed him. And as was true with the first four, there is no discussion, there is no hesitancy on the part of Levi. There is no argument. When Jesus, when Jesus calls his name, the Spirit calls his heart. And Levi leaves his profitable situation and follows Jesus. Christ is again shown to have not only the compassion, but the authority and the ability to call men out of the world and to make them his disciples which is what he did with you and I. And as was the case with Simon and Andrew and James and John, we might notice 
that Levi was not looking for Jesus, but Jesus sought him out. Didn't we just sing that? He is the one who was seeking me. Levi could sing that too. By the way, that also teaches us, and I think encourages us this morning, people of God, you with family members, you with loved ones, you with acquaintances that are not Christians, let us learn never to despair regarding a loved one who has not yet come to Christ. Let us not ever think that anyone is beyond the reach of God or beyond the call of God. The scripture is filled with enough examples to prove that that is not the case. From pagan Abraham to Christ-hater, church-destroyer Saul of Tarsus and countless others between, countless others besides them, prostitutes, adulteresses, thieves, idolaters, even, even a man who, a thief who was in the actual process of paying for his crimes was not beyond the reach of Jesus. That man was paying for his temporal sins, the temporal cost for his crimes, while the man hanging right next to him was paying for his spiritual debt. And he said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. No one is beyond the reach of God. Keep praying for your loved ones. Keep praying for those who seem as hard as a Jewish tax collector. Because Christ will call whom he will call. And when he does... Well, as Jesus himself said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Don't give up. Pray. Witness. Share. Model Christianity. By the way, Mark here refers to this tax collector by the name of Levi, but you likely know him better by his other name. That name is Matthew. Matthew, who wrote the gospel right before this one that we're reading. From despised tax collector to disciple and apostle and writer of Scripture, one of the four gospels, Christ does that at his will. And that's the Lord's call as we see it here. From here, from there, rather, the scene shifts to what Mark, with his tendency as we've seen to focus less on the the where and the when and focus on the what he simply refers to in verse 15 as a meal it says and as he reclined at table in his house well by itself we don't know who reclined at whose table in whose house Somewhat ambiguous. We get help from the other Gospels. We get help from the context, certainly. But the other Gospels tell us that this is not just a meal. Luke tells us that Levi, that Matthew, threw what he calls a great feast. It's in Luke 5.29. A great feast in his house. 
So this is Levi throwing this, this meal, having this meal, a dinner of, of celebration, a dinner of honoring Jesus in the house of Matthew, the now former tax collector. And in what literary, in, in literary terms we might refer to as a plot complication, we are told in verse 15 that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. It's interesting that Mark puts those two categories together, tax collector and sinner. It's interesting, but it's not surprising because it's very common in the New Testament. Nine times in the Gospels, these phrases are put together. Sinners and tax collectors or tax collectors and sinners. So Mark is telling us that the company that Jesus is keeping here, as well as the home of, of whom he has entered to share a meal, is not really the kind of company that a self-respecting Jewish teacher would be expected to keep. And Mark gives us a very interesting comment there at the end of verse 15. When he says that these tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Oh, and by the way, that, that reclining there is a first century phrase that tells us that they were having a meal together. If you don't know, in Jewish homes, in a practice that was picked up from the surrounding Greek culture, meals would be served at, at low tables, kind of put into the shape of a U, and the diners would recline and not sit like we would, but they would recline on couches put around these tables, three sides of the table. The fourth side was left open for the servers to come in and put the food down. So when it says that they were reclining with Jesus, they were sharing a meal with him, a not inconsequential thing in the first century. But the interesting part is why these tax collectors and these sinners were eating with Jesus. And it's right there at the end of verse 15. It says, for there were many who followed him. Many of these tax collectors and sinners were following Jesus. There seems to be fruit already being born by Jesus among these more disreputable people of society. The friends of Levi were, were or are becoming followers of Jesus. Now remember, a follower does not necessarily mean a Christian. There were lots who followed him who didn't necessarily believe him or believe in him, but they're followers. And our Lord went and ate with them. He was not snobbish. He was not above being around, even eating with those who are looked down on by society. By the way, neither should we be. Those who desire a seat at the table, those who desire a place with the people of God, no matter what their past, no matter what their social standing, they are to be given a place if they seek it, if they desire it. There is no one whose past is too seedy or whose social standing is too poor that we should stand aloof from them if we seek to be followers of Christ. If God will accept you and will accept me, he will accept anyone, and so should we. But the category here, tax collectors and sinners... You know, that really embraces us all, doesn't it? We're all sinners. And as we are likewise sinners, when we come to Christ, we are likewise saints. But this seeming willingness here of Jesus to sit and to eat with this kind of crowd is, again, not 
wasted. It does not go unnoticed by the scribes. And this will become a pattern with Jesus, and it will become a continual concern by the religious leaders. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, they will say he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners and look down on him for that. Remember, we saw the scribes that are again mentioned here. We saw them last week in the episode that we looked at. And there they were raising questions as to the propriety of, of Jesus to what he did. Last week it was a theological uh, situation. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they were questioning. This time it is a religious situation, a, a religious difference. You say, well, what's the difference between theological and religious? Oh, it can be quite a bit. One of the things that comes into play here with this idea of tax collectors and sinners and was certainly on their minds is that these types of people were, the the idea of tax collectors and sinners was almost a, a technical term to refer to people who did not fit the the pharisaical idea of what a follower of God should be. These types of people were not into the the religious particularism of the Pharisees. The thing that made these men sinners to the Pharisees was that they didn't deem so important, not so much the Ten Commandments, but the 613 or whatever, the 600 plus additional commandments that the Pharisees had added. See, these people were despised to the Pharisees particularly because they didn't wash right and they didn't eat right or they didn't tithe right or they didn't pray right or so on. They just weren't up to snuff religiously. Now, certainly they were morally sinners as well, but the focus of the the term, the focus of the, the Pharisees, the scribes here, was that they weren't fitting in with their conception of what a follower of God should be. Jesus, of course, as we see throughout the Gospels, didn't seem to have a particular problem with associating with them. And they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't Jesus know who these men are? That they are not righteous in their definition, but they're sinners. They're not morally upright. They're not ritually upright. The scribes and the Pharisees wouldn't eat with them. And in fact, they won't even ask Jesus. They ask the disciples this question, probably because they didn't want to go into the house themselves and could more easily get a question to him through the disciples than trying to get to the guest of honor himself. Why does he eat with this kind of people? They're, they're stymied about this. Why does he associate with them? They're, doesn't he know what he's doing? He's a, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's, he's a religious leader. He's giving Jewish rabbis a bad name. The teacher of the law is to be above this kind of person, they said. And it's disgraceful that Jesus has failed to observe this qualitative difference between us and them. In Levi or Matthew's own gospel that he will write, he records Jesus noting this, and I mentioned or made reference to it a moment ago, that the Son of Man 
He says that, that John came, John the Baptist came, uh, not drinking, and they, they said that, that he was not right. And then Jesus, it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And see how those descriptions are all sort of grouped together, and they all show a picture of what they thought of Jesus. A glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors. You know, their attitude is perfectly captured in a parable that Jesus told. I'll read it to you real quickly in Luke chapter 18. You know it. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Well, we already see that where this is going. And how this fits with the scribes and the Pharisees. But here's the parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But that's the attitude of the Pharisees here, and the scribes among them, and of many among the church today. What a sad statement. And so that's their challenge to Jesus through his disciples. Why does he eat with sinners, with tax collectors and sinners? And that brings us to Jesus' answer and our third point, the Savior's charge. And here's the point of the passage. Here's the answer that Jesus gives to them and the answer that Jesus gives to the question that we asked at the beginning of the sermon this morning. And it's really the question that the scribes were making. Why does Jesus do what he does? Why does he come among sinners, and not just according to the scribes' point of view of who sinners are, but according to God's as well? All have sinned. That means all are sinners. But why does Jesus do what he does? Why does he come among the sinners? Why does he associate with them? Why does he live with them? Why will he die for them? And the answer Jesus gives is in verse 17. Let's spend a couple minutes looking at it. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. First, he paints a little picture, tells a little parable. He states a principle that is axiomatic, it is self-evident. Those who are well have no need of a physician. That makes sense. I mean, can you imagine making a doctor's appointment and waiting the six weeks or whatever it ends up taking for your appointment to arrive? Maybe you call them every day to see if, if there's any chance to get in early, anything on the cancellation list so that you can slip in. But finally the day of your appointment comes and the doctor sits you down and says, what seems to be the trouble? And you say, nothing. I'm fine. Fit as a fiddle, 
as they used to say. No pains, no illness. What would your doctor do? Well, he'd tell you that you're probably wasting his time, probably charge you today. Why? Because if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. There won't be any doctors in heaven because there won't be any sickness in heaven. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That was true in the first century when Jesus told this. It's true today. So then Jesus applies that to the situation and to the question from the scribes. Just as a doctor is is necessary for sick people and not for well people, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. I came to call the righteous, not sinners. That gets to this question of why Jesus came. Of of what his purpose was in coming. What was his charge as he was sent by the Father? He came as a physician and he came for those who are sick. He came with that charge. He came with that purpose. He came into the world to save sinners, Paul says. Now, he came not as a medical doctor, though, as we've seen, he has the authority to to heal. He has the authority over illness. As the creator of, of our bodies, he is able at his will, again, as we've seen, to speak to illness, to speak to lameness and to leprosy, and to have it go. But in answering this question of why he eats with sinners, Jesus points to himself not as a physician of bodies, but as a physician of souls. Jesus has come to give help to those who are soul sick, to sinners. And let us make no mistake that these men gathered in Matthew's home are sinners. Not just as the the Pharisees defined it, but as God does. They're extortionists. They were making profit on the backs of those over whom they had authority. Now, Let's take just a minute because we need to be clear on something and sometimes people go off the rails a little bit here. We must not confuse, beloved, we must not confuse Jesus' willingness to share a place at the dinner table with these men as saying that he is unconcerned about their sin, much less that he is condoning their sin. He's not downplaying. He is not condoning their sin. They are in need of a doctor, so the doctor must approach them. That's what he's saying. He must approach them to give them the cure. He must spend time with them in order that they may be saved. And that goes for us today. Some Christians say, oh, Christians should not have any unchristian friends, non-Christian friends. You should avoid them. You should not uh, be seen with them. You should not participate in anything with them. Then how do we reach them? How do we give them the gospel? How do we show them the gospel? We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We don't participate in their sin. We don't agree with their sin. We don't say, that's okay, you do what you got to do but we don't avoid them either. We don't stand aloof. We go among them and say, I'm no better than you. But I know the answer 
to the issue that you have. I know the answer to sin. And it's the same with the church. The church, the the picture of the church as a hospital is a great analogy because it's full of sick people. Sorry, I'm included too. Sick people, people. Now, you know what, Paul would put it differently. He would say the church is more like a a mortuary because it has people in it who are dead but who have been brought to life by Christ. But we have to associate with the world. Um, uh, Paul, over in 1 Corinthians 5, listen to, to what Paul says about this. Paul says, I wrote to you, church, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, some people say, well, there you go. I don't know who that would leave, um, but not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then he goes on, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. He says, since then you would need to go out of the world. He goes on and says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He's talking about the the idea there, the teaching there of church discipline. He's not talking about, because he says at the beginning, I'm not talking about those of the world who are that way. They have to be that way. That's the way they are. And we need to approach them. We need to associate with them to be able to share Christ with them. Jesus says he hasn't come to call the righteous. And by that he's referring to the self-righteous. To the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. He says, I'm not coming to, to provide salvation for those who don't think they need it. For those who think they can save themselves, they won't listen to him anyway. They don't think they need help. Those who think they can save themselves are not Jesus' mission. If you think you can save yourself, you're perfectly perfectly welcome to try, but you'll fail. Jesus didn't come because Jesus didn't come to help you along. Jesus didn't come to give you the tools that you need to save yourself. He came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. Again, that parable of the Pharisees and the tax collectors is so instructive. The Pharisee, who with much pomp and an air of such self-importance, stands and says, I thank you that I'm not like that sinner over there, but I'm I'm doing very well. And he lists how he's doing pretty well, very well. Very well, truth be known. Such a man, God can't help because such a man won't appeal to God for help. He is the well man in the office of the physician, or at least he thinks he's well. But to sinners, Christ is the best and the only hope because he came to justify the ungodly. He came to seek and to save that which was lost.
It is then that the great physician of the souls is able to come in. When we know, when we know that we're sinners. Last week we looked at the, I think it was last week, the Heidelberg Catechism. And it asked there, how many things do you need to know to live and die in the joy of the comfort of knowing that you are Christ's? And the answer begins by saying, first, the first thing I need to know is how great my sin and misery is. And that's true. Because it is then that the great physician of the soul comes in and brings healing. Actually, he doesn't just bring healing, he brings resurrection and life because our sickness is that we are dead in sin again. Our problem is that we are beyond hope, we are beyond help. Our spiritual diagnosis is terminal. Our spiritual diagnosis is post-mortem. We are dead, Paul says. But Christ is life. Christ is the physician of the soul who can and does give eternal life. And that's why he came. And that's why he associates with sinners. Because it is sinners who need to hear this news. And that's why we need to associate with sinners. That's why we need to welcome sinners into our church. Because they are the ones that need to hear that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We desperately need to hear it. And we desperately need to believe it. And you've heard it. So we'll close with this question. Have you believed it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the physician of the soul, your son, whom you have sent to seek and to save that which was lost. We, we thank you that he has worked his work in our souls, that he has brought us from death to life, that he has given to us eternal life, abundant life. And we pray, Father, that any who, have, who are hearing this, who have not yet applied to the physician of the soul for remedy, would do so that they would come to him, that they would cry out to him, I am sick and I need a remedy. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would work in that way today. And help us, who have had that work done in us, help us to rejoice in the physician of our soul, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.